Welcome back to That's Ancient History. I'm your host, Jean Mingus, and today we are here to chat all about classics and early modern theatre. We have talked about modern literature, ancient literature, and now we're dealing with a time period somewhere in between, and the reception of ancient myth and ancient history in the plays and literature of the early modern period. Now, as this is certainly not my area of expertise, I am joined in this episode by Elle Jones. Elle studied classics, cinema and theatre at university, was a theatre reviewer and now works in publishing. And aside from all of those professional accolades, she is also one of the most intelligent people I have ever met in my life. So I was incredibly pleased to get her on the podcast to tell you all a little bit about a subject that she is enthusiastic about and it is absolutely fascinating learning about the receptions of classics in the early modern period. Now it's easy to think of Shakespeare when we think of the early modern period and we will certainly be talking about Shakespeare in this episode but as Elle reveals there is far more to the early modern than Shakespeare alone. If you're interested in seeing more of what Elle is up to online you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at LF Jones, but without further ado, let's hear a little bit more about classics and early modern theatre. Thanks so much for joining me today, Elle. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to chat to you about early modern theatre. Yeah, well, I hope it'll be interesting. Yeah, well, we've already been having a bit of preparatory chat, haven't we? Mm-hmm. And you've already got me incredibly keen to pick up more early modern theatre. So I'm assuming that everyone else is going to feel the same by the end of this episode. Hopefully. I mean, reading more books is always my goal. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that is a, a admirable goal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought for context, it would be good to start out by getting you to tell us a little bit what actually constitutes the early modern period and early modern theatre. Yeah. Well, I suppose you can kind of consider it to be um, post-medieval, like Elizabethan and Jacobean theatre, 16th century, 17th century plays. So it's, it's this kind of crazy time of a lot of upheaval. You've got colonial expansion, the age of exploration. In England, you've got the breakdown of the feudal system. So you've got the rise of Protestantism, the rise of the merchant classes, Mm -hmm. you've got the sumptuary laws coming out, which is when basically, because people had money for the first time, the nobles didn't want the middle classes dressing nice, (laughs) so they like invented all of these laws to be like, you can't wear velvet, who do you think you are? Oh my! (laughs) So it was all of these kind of things to do with materials and colours, it's a way to control the classes because of this. Yeah, so like, sort of everything's changing, but there's obviously people that want to maintain the status quo, so they're freaking out. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, the world had changed, there'd been like plague, there was hardly any completely different situation. And in Italy, you've got the Renaissance, so a massive influx of Greek scholars to Italy after the fall of Constantinople, I think in 1452, I think. Sounds right to me. So that kind of led to this rediscovery of Greek philosophy, the excavation of ancient Roman art had an incredible impact, like the discovery of that statue I told you about that I can't pronounce. None of us can. That sounds right to me. I don't know how to say it. It's spelled very oddly. Which is a statue of this Trojan priest and his sons who are being attacked by snakes. Mm -hmm. And they discovered that and it kind of that's one of the key moments of the Renaissance that got everyone re-engaging with the classics again. Um, Instead of seeing it as an evil pagan. Mm. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's a big change, actually. Yeah, Yeah. it's kind of more like seeing it from a fresh way. So, 
Um, and the Age of Exploration really helped cement England as like a Western power and helped create that kind of sense of identity as being Western, which is really essentially based on Greek culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting that we've always seen the world that way, like East versus West, mm-hmm. like going back to the first great East versus West conflict, which is the Trojan War. Yeah. And then the Iliad, which is a story of that, is the foundation stone of Western literature. Yeah. Where it kind of all ties in together as to how we see ourselves. Um, yeah. Where these sort of stigmas with our, start. Our philosophy and our yeah. culture and our arts as being Western. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of a broad summary yeah. of the early modern period. Mm. But the plays I'm, I'm going to talk to you about today are specifically English. Okay. From that period. We've got narrowed down somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I don't speak Italian. So. <laughs> uh, well, disappointment over yeah, here. Sorry, I know, I'm a letdown. <laughs> um, that, that's actually kind of amazing. I don't think. It's a period in history where my knowledge is so vague that you you really kind of broadened my perception of how big a change yeah, it is. Yeah, I think people just think the cheaters mm. and they just see the kind of like racy side of it. Mm. Um, but actually, when you think about it, it must have been a really crazy time to live in. Like, yeah, for all different classes of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating actually. So I think we've... Did, did we briefly mention Shakespeare already? Um, probably. Okay. Kind of shit. I just... <laughs> yeah. So as soon as I think of early modern theatre, I think yeah. of Shakespeare. Yeah. But I, I was curious actually uh, who else do you think are the sort of like names yeah. the names that come to mind when you think of early modern playwrights yeah. well Shakespeare's obviously the most famous one and I suppose who should always be referenced um, after him which maybe not fair that he has to go with the actor <laughs> um, he's wonderful in his own right is Christopher Marlowe mm-hmm. people call him Kit Marlowe okay. um, who was writing plays slightly before Shakespeare and during Shakespeare as, um, they probably did know each other okay. um Marlowe, like, just look him up. Like, he is the weirdest life ever. <laughs> He's, like, been accused of being a spy. He's been accused of being, like, um, an atheist. There's the possibility he was a secret tutor for Elizabeth I. <laughs> he, like, he wrote loads of plays and he basically died in a fight in a bar in Deptford <laughs> by accident by being stabbed in the eye from behind. Oh. And it's like... Wait, how can you stab someone <laughs> through the back of their eye and it not be on purpose? I think that's, yeah, I think that's kind of weird. <laughs> so he had a really weird life and a really weird death and everyone's like, is he a spy? Yeah. Was he gay? Was he an atheist? Mm. He's just a massive mystery man, mm. basically. I love it. Yeah. Um, so he wrote um, Dr. Faustus, is probably one of his most famous plays. Mm-hmm. He wrote... Um, Dido, Queen of Carthage, which is obviously based on the classical myth of Dido and Aeneas. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jew of Malta, loads of plays. Great, like a really great playwright. Um, there's also people like, uh, everyone's called Thomas, Thomas Middleton, <laughs> Thomas Decker. Um, they wrote plays separately, sometimes they wrote plays together. Yeah. Um, again, I think another Thomas Kidd, Thomas Kidd wrote, um, several places. He was Marlowe's housemate, actually. So if you well, want your child to become a playwright, name Thomas. Thomas. Well, I mean, everyone's Thomas. has got Thomas Cromwell, Thomas Cranmer, <laughs> it's Thomas More. It's like, it's, that was... The very, time of Thomas. Yeah, the time of Thomas. But um, it's renamed. This, it's not yeah, early it's modern theatre. It's theatre of the time of yeah. Thomas. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's um, Marston, kind of Jacobean playwright. Jacobean plays tend to be 
lot more grizzly mm. Elizabethan okay. I mean, some of them are great. Like, check them out. They're dark okay. and creepy, and they're like not afraid to be graphic. Everyone's looking them up right now <laughs> yeah. on their computers and yeah. phones. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, like blood and guts and driving people mad, and yeah. Yeah, this is a little bit of that in Shakespeare, right? Yeah, <laughs> because he kind of he brought, he covers Elizabethan and then into the ah. like some of it's always earlier stuff is Elizabethan. Mm. Okay, well, so this is good. This is good to know. Uh, are there any particular classical themes that have come up time and time again? Are there any really popular myths or characters? Um, I think probably an interesting one to think about is um, Helen of Troy. Mm. Like she's like she pops up quite a lot in Doctor Faustus because she's obviously the epitome of beauty. Mm. She's the ultimate. Um, so. Yeah, I think I think they play around with it a bit. Like some plays take classics as a central part of them and others just have them like weaved in throughout yeah. like Dr. Faustus and Helen, as I mentioned. So there's like Troilus and Cressida by Shakespeare, there's Dido, the play I mentioned earlier by Marlowe. Um, and then there's there's kind of oddballs in the middle. Like I think A Midsummer Night's Dream is a really one mm. interesting one to to pick up because it's one of the few I think there's only two Shakespeare plays that he completely invented himself without ah. basing it on a previous work like a poem or another play or something that he took inspiration from um, he just kind of made it up so it features um, Theseus uh-huh. and Hippolyta Queen of the Amazons mm-hmm. and it's kind of like their wedding feast I mm-hmm. think or he's wooing her or he's just married her been a while. I'm a bit rusty on that one. <laughs> a bit rusty, but there's a relationship. Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of minor characters that help sort of frame it all. But I think what's really interesting is that the mythological characters are not the magical element of the play. Mm. They're the normal human element. It's like taking it and placing it in like a a place of reality. Mm-hmm. And the mythological and the magical aspects of that play are done in this really playful way. So you've got. Titania, who I think originally comes from Ovid, and she's mm. like a giantess. So mm. this was Titania kind of makes sense. And her love of Bottom, who gets turned into a donkey, like half a donkey, yeah. is kind of like an inversion of the Circe myth ah. when you think about it. And she sort of falls in love with the animal who's been turned into that by her husband. Uh-huh. Oberon, who comes from, um, I think, the character Alberi from Merovingian legends uh-huh. that's like ancient French stuff wow and then Nibelungenlied which is where like um the ring cycle and Wagner and Lord of the Rings all yeah yeah, yeah. Out from that and Puck um the mischievous little fairy is from English myth yeah um, it's actually the same root as the word pixie comes from mm. Puck um so I think it's like Shakespeare's really kind of blending and playing with that one in a way that the audience are kind of expected to sort of understand. Yeah. Um, and then most of the time, myths are just weaved into other plays as references mm-hmm. to like help explain aspects of characters. Mm. Like so that was something I was definitely curious um, to hear your opinion on because 
the one thing that I always think of when I think of Shakespeare's plays, despite our sort of like highbrow literary opinion of them now, is that mm. they were very much accessible to yeah. the masses and they were they were popular plays that people went to see in the Globe and sort of like how to what extent were his audience expected to get yeah. the references? Yeah, I think it is interesting that classics, I suppose, because of the education system historically in this country, is kind of regarded as being for the elite mm. um, and the highly educated. Um, and I think you can kind of get the sense from the plays, not just Shakespeare, but the others as well, that they function for both. So there's some, like, so there was a lot of court masks at that time period where, um, so Ben Johnson, who was a playwright, would often write court masks and they'd be designed by Inigo Joan and, the, and they'd be these really lavish affairs mm. and they'd have a lot of mythological references and they'd mm. be held in court exclusively for courtiers and, mm-hmm. and the queen or the king or whatever. Um, and when you think about the plot of Macbeth that has been quite radically altered from what we know from history, where Macbeth was kind of an okay dude, <laughs> and Banquo was the sort of usurper, the bad guy, but because um, the bad guy won, um, <laughs> um, his line mm-hmm. leads to uh, King James. <laughs> the first, he was obviously Scottish, mm-hmm. descended from the Banquo character. Yeah. So Shakespeare sort of flipped it, and he made had that witch's vision and the prophecy of um, the line of Banquo and his sons and mm. sons and sons becoming kings. So Shakespeare kind of played around with that. So I think there is, to a degree, a sense of like the royal patron and playing to an elite. Yeah. But also the plays. Uh, they're full of like body humor that's mm-hmm. just made for cheap ticket mm-hmm. standing seats of the globe um and you've got really for the first time probably in history you've got the mingling of the merchant classes and the and the working class in um in a space where they've chosen to spend their money so they, they spend their earnings how they want for like kind of really the first time um so they were raucous all the time with the the scenes of horror from the kind of super gross <laughs> yeah. place I mentioned before. Um, and there's also quite a lot of interaction. So there are quite a few reports about this play by two Thomases, Milton and Decker, <laughs> called um, The Roaring Girl, which was inspired by a real-life London character called Moll Cutpurse. Mm-hmm. I think her real name was Mary Frith, I think, but she was called Moll Cutpurse. Um, and she basically was a cross-dressing thief, fence, and pimp, and she had a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she got arrested all the time dressing as a man, and, yep. and she just kept doing it, and that's what she wanted to do. So the play is kind of based on her, oh, wow. um, and there are reports that it's likely that on um, at least one occasion she herself was in the audience of the play about her and interacted and, like, played songs yeah. and stuff kind of like was involved in it to wow. so I think there is quite a sort of like a raucous fun mm. everyday element to it as well like for the local community yeah. like, rather than just an understanding that only the elite are going to yeah. get these references So it kind of makes me think of in a way ancient comedy as well because yeah. again it's really easy to think of classical literature as being quite highbrow and elitist yeah, it's is. actually Aristophanes full of fart jokes. I know, jokes. I know, it's so rude. I was so shocked when I like, first read, is it 
um, clouds. Oh my god, it's just I, a fart joke. Just like, this can't take this. It's a running fart joke. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And I think as well, like when you look at the characters who are making the classical references, they're from like quite a range of socioeconomic mm. backgrounds. So, like, there's a really famous quote um, from Dr. Faustus, who's obviously a scholar, mm -hmm. um, was this a face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium, sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss. Mm -hmm. So he's obviously an education, mm -hmm. an educated guy, he's a doctor. You've got nobles and things, and Henry the Sixth Part Two. you've got casual references to Medea and Aeneas mm -hmm. um, from a nobleman. There's a lower status character called Pistol in Merry Wives of Windsor, Windsor sorry, um, that compares a character to Actium. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the lowest of the low characters with the lowest status of all, mm. which are the witches. Okay. Um, so in Macbeth, they're summoning the goddess Hecate. Mm -hmm. So you've kind of got this across the board, different yeah. economical backgrounds. It's not exclusive to one yeah, type of character. Not. Are there any themes or circumstances in these plays, though, that are often drawing on classical themes. Yeah, I would say, um, I suppose, love and, and courtly love particularly. Um, there's quite a kind of a lot of references to the court. Um, Elizabeth I herself was super great at controlling her own image. <laughs> and she kind of almost created a cult of Cynthia mm -hmm. around herself. So kind of this moon goddess, mm -hmm. using pearls all the time in, in images of her to represent chastity. Um, and she had a really rigidly controlled court and she would um, have tantrums if people got married um, that she didn't pick. She would literally just <laughs> ma match make everyone and control it really crazily. And there's a really nice scene um, in Romeo and Juliet where it's like, Julia is kind of being set up almost as a new goddess, the antithesis of this, like a goddess of love and the sun rather than chastity. So it celebrates the sort of freedom of love and choice rather than that rigid control mm. that Elizabeth wielded. So I think she's kind of being a bit mocked. Um, so the quote, there's a quote that's, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon who is already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, art more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green, and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. So I think that's that's quite kind of a clever way mm. to sort of slightly mock mock that. And I think there are other instances where courtly love is almost used um, to make a situation acceptable that maybe might not be. So mm. there's um, a play called. Tis Pity, She's a Horror, which you might be able to guess from the title, is a Jack and yeah. play um, by John Ford. And it's um, quite a disturbing play about an incestuous love affair uh -huh. between a brother and a sister. And kind of, there's a really lovely quote, which if you view it out of context, is quite beautiful. Thus hung Jove on Leda's neck and sucked that divine ambrosia from her lips. Yeah. And yeah, that's beautiful. But in the <laughs> play, that's happened immediately after their first like romantic encounter uh -huh. so it's almost like they're trying to romanticize something yeah using courtly language and, and classical references mm. is actually a bit and it's like with Juliet's speech as well about Romeo has this courtly veil over it rather than what it is which is quite a blatant expression of her desire for Romeo mm -hmm. to come because it's night time gallop apace you fiery footed steeds towards Phoebus lodging 
such a wagoner as Phaeton would whip you to the west and bring in cloudy night immediately. You know, what she's really saying is, hurry up night time, I want my boyfriend <laughs> to get here. You know? I love it. But they're using classics to mm-hmm. make it more acceptable. Yep. Um, and again, back to Dr. Faustus, he loves talking about Helen. <laughs> oh, thou art fairer than the evening air, clad in the beauty of a thousand stars. Brighter art thou than flaming Jupiter when he appeared to hapless Emily. So what's happened there is that he's sold the soul to the devil and Helen is there because she's been summoned by a demon. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of like almost using courtly love to, I don't know, dress up as yeah. a situation, make it more acceptable. Um, but I also think that they use a lot of classical references in in horror as well. Okay. Um, so I mentioned that the witches in Macbeth earlier and figure of the witch is very popular mm-hmm. in that time period. There's a lot of witchcraft plays. It's actually what I did my dissertation on at university because there's so many and mm-hmm. witches represented a, a real genuine fear mm-hmm. of the audience. Um, and there's a character called Erichtho who I think she's in a few different works. I think she first appears in Lucan. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. But she's a witch from Thessaly. And she's in this play that um, I wrote about my dissertation that nobody loves. Everybody hates this play. <laughs> I don't even think it's in print. I don't know why. I was like, I want to pick a really random, difficult play with no information about it whatsoever. Um, but she's this really sort of repulsive, quite disgusting witch who goes around stalking um cemeteries and <laughs> abusing corpses and she she's like she's described in really graphic and disgusting terms uh-huh. um and it's kind of super scary she's this um epitome of like corrupted womanhood i suppose mm. so i think they use kind of like a lot of the references to like the fates and things like that. Mm-hmm. These kind of old hag characters yeah. from, from mythology. <laughs> yeah. So standard. Yeah. So it's kind of a mixed bag really. I mean we talked a little bit about how the early modern period is a period of great change. So was this sort of popular use of classics and literature sort of mimicked elsewhere in in, in culture of the time? I think definitely in poetry. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not sure about kind of everyday people's access to poetry the, yeah. way, the way that they Not would the have same. access to theatre because they would have had to be able to read yeah. <laughs> um, which you don't have to be able to to go to the theatre um, but certainly a lot of the poetry at the time backs it up like, uh-huh. yeah um, so there's that really famous poem by Thomas Wyatt I think and it's like, why is it another Thomas another <laughs> It should have been, well, should have been supposedly, it's about Anne, Anne Boleyn. Okay. Thomas White was arrested at one point for possibly committing adultery with Anne Boleyn, but he was actually the only one that wasn't beheaded. <laughs> he was let go. Um, it, they, they, I think they were kind of neighbours or something. When they were okay. Up, and it's possible that they like knew, a, knew each other yeah. when they were younger. Um, and there's this poem... And it uses a lot of the, I can't remember what it's called, something about a hind or hunting in the forest. Um, and it's about a, a, a white heart and he, the hunter is chasing this white heart mm. through the forest and he can't get a hold of it, he can't capture it. Mm. Um, 
a hind, sorry, not a heart, which I think is a male deer. Um, and then it has around it a neck a chain or a crown, and engraved on it is um, Nalini Tangeri, which is a phrase from the Bible that means touch me not. Okay. I think it's what Jesus says when he first comes out of the tomb. Okay. Um, and it says Nalini Tangeri for Caesar's I am. Okay. So it's basically, you can't touch me because I belong to the king. Yeah. So that's why it's interpreted as one of the most obvious references to Anne Boleyn. Yeah. And it's got a, class, a figure from classical history there mm. rather than classical mythology, but it's kind of weaved in that association. Yeah. It's, yeah. It goes to show that they never sort of, because we've talked in the past in podcast episodes about sort of more recent popular culture's obsession with classics as well. It's just, mm. it it filters through yeah. society for centuries yeah. which is like so interesting it'd be so yeah. interesting to trace one myth yeah over the course of from antiquity to now definitely i think you see it in um obviously you see it in paintings but in terms of paintings that were widely seen in yeah. public so i suppose you can limit that to effectively churches yeah and i think kind of before really people could read churches are almost like like books, mm. they're, they're not just buildings, they're, they're telling stories. Yeah. Even though obviously most of the art in churches is religious, mm-hmm. art, you'll often see, so like the Sibyl, mm-hmm. characters like that, these kind of prophetesses, mm. seers that come from mythology mm-hmm. as well as the Bible. Mm. It's quite interesting to see the different ways. Yeah, it never completely vanished. Yeah. Listen, uh, I kind of like that perspective on churches as well as being sort of like an early form of um, access to sort of stories. And yeah, well, nice. I mean, the Bible was entirely in Latin, mm. so... Yes. <laughs> so you probably are already aware of this, as everyone listening is, but I like to ask my guests to recommend us a book at the mm-hmm. end of each episode. Which obviously, we've talked about a few plays, but perhaps there is one or two pieces of literature, whether they be early modern plays or non-fiction or pieces mm-hmm. of classical literature that you in particular love and would recommend. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people ought to read the Thomas White poem so they can actually understand what I'm talking <laughs> about and know, um, know what it's called. I just hear my dad getting angry with me, really forgetting what it's called. Um, but, but yeah, definitely, I think there are um, a few playwrights that are not as loved as maybe they should be. Okay. Um, Marlowe is definitely one of them. He's a beautiful, beautiful writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I do quite like some of the some of the Jacobean stuff, not all of it. <laughs> um, the Duchess of Malfi is a great one. Um, okay. uh, the Witch of Edmonton, mm-hmm. which is Middleton? Or it's Rowley, Middleton and Decker. A lot of plays were written by... Okay, yeah. So sometimes they write, like, oh, I write the comedy characters well, and you write the, like, love characters well. Yeah. So they kind of would take parts together. That one's really great. Um, I would also probably suggest some, like, classic children's books about mythology uh-huh. as well. Um, I suppose it's quite good to get you interested in mm-hmm. um, the whole accessibility thing. So I was obsessed with a book called The Luck of Troy when I was a kid that I think really helped develop my love of classics. Mm. And that is by Roger Lancelin Green, who mm-hmm. is one of the uh, Inklings from Oxford. So he was like in the same writing group as C.S. Lewis ah. and Tolkien and everyone. So he kind of hung out with them, but he's not as famous. No. Oh. Cool. Okay. Well, <laughs> you championed some underappreciated authors yeah. here, yeah. which I appreciate. Which I appreciate. <laughs> Glad it's not just all this. I mean, to be fair, we've had quite a few Shakespeare recommendations in previous podcast yeah. episodes, so it's time for Marlowe. Yeah, I think as well people associate Shakespeare with school all the time. Yeah, that's true. It can be a little off-putting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, um, if anything, 
we're all going to be going home and reading these Jacobean plays. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of them are so dark. You're just like, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. This yeah, has been absolutely you. fascinating. I feel like I have learned so much and I'm sure everyone listening feels the same. Um, you can, of course, go and check Ella on her social media at LF Jones on both Instagram and Twitter. Yes. Yes, and um, there you'll find... Many more interesting tidbits and beautiful bookish pictures. Yeah, my Twitter is pretty boring. Okay. <laughs> my Instagram, lots of books, yeah. Okay, good. We're, we're all down for that, I'm cool. sure. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.